Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Ahoy! Today we're talking about whales, whale watching, and Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary off the coast of Massachusetts. My guests are also colleagues with me on Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary Advisory Council. From Maine, on the line is John Williamson. Hello, John. Hi, Rob. And from Boston, Professor Les Kaufman. Hello, Les. You're, um... So off the coast of Massachusetts is Stellwagen Bank. It's, a, um, it's like the bottom rising up from the deep to form a threshold between Mass Bay and the Gulf of Maine. And it lies like an enormous berm between Gloucester and Provincetown. And if you go to the Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary webpage, you can learn a little bit about the history of it, that fishermen had called it middle ground for years, and some charts had noted shallows in the area. But it took Henry Stellwagen, a lieutenant commander of the U.S. Navy on loan to the U.S. Coast Guard Survey, which is the forerunner of NOAA's Coast and Geodetic Survey, he was working from the U.S. Coast Survey steamer Bib, and he actually mapped the full length and breadth of the bank in 1884 and 18, no, in, he, he mapped it in 1854 and 1855. And Commander Stellwagen wrote on October 22, 1854, I consider I have made an important discovery in the location of a 15-fathom bank lying in a line between Cape Cod and Cape Ann, with 40 and 50 fathoms inside and to northward of it, and 35 fathoms just outside it. It is not on any chart I have been able to procure. We have traced nearly five miles in width and over six miles in length, it no doubt extending much further. So, Les, Kaufman, I understand that you're talking to us while traveling with your family on your first day of a much-earned vacation. Is that right? Well, we're, we're trying. I don't know how successful we'll be. Okay. Well, in case we should lose you during the broadcast, let me start off with you and, um, and ask a bit about um, how you first learned about or first discovered Stellwagen Bank. Well, uh, as soon after I moved to Boston, I began working with the New England Aquarium. And yes. before long, I was their director of education. 
And uh, I took a whale watch cruise, and that was my first experience. I really had no idea where I was, just that there were whales. But uh, a few years on, I moved up to the research lab and began directing uh, and leading my own research out on Stellwagen. And now it's uh, like my backyard. <laughs> and now you've, you're over at uh, Boston University. Yeah, I'm with Boston University and part-time with a, an organization called Conservation International, or CI. So with CI, I do my tropical work, uh, but my work up here around Massachusetts is all focused uh, in or near Stellwagen Bank. And, and what are you doing in or near Stellwagen Bank? Well, I study uh, food webs. I study who eats who and how, and then I take that information and together with a group of colleagues, I use computer models to figure out what keeps the flow of good things going to people, whether it's fish or stuff uh, that people want to see to support the ecotourism industry or just clean water, recreation, everything. So we're trying to understand the engine that drives the ocean economy in Massachusetts. Well, in 1975... Uh, people went out looking for whales out of Provincetown, and uh, initially they had seen some right whales in Kitcott Bay, but the next year, 75, they didn't find so many rights, but they found a lot of humpbacks and fin and minke uh, to the north off of Stellwagen. And why is that? Well, Stellwagen Bank is one of four uh, banks that are not too far offshore, 20 to 40 miles offshore from the coast of New Hampshire, and Massachusetts, and uh, deep nutrient-rich currents wash up against these banks, and the nutrients are forced up into shallow water, sunlit water, and then phytoplankton blooms, and life explodes around these spots. The phytoplankton, the little marine plants, bring in uh, tiny crustaceans called zooplankton. They bring in fish, and the fish bring in whales and sharks and seabirds and tourists and fishermen. <laughs> so we had the good fortune of, of actually seeing some whales feeding uh, a week or so ago. Um, was that a normal occurrence, or what, what were we seeing happening there? Yeah, that, what you were seeing is Stellwagen gold. You were seeing uh, a wildlife spectacle unequaled anywhere on the planet except maybe the Serengeti. And that's why so many people like to go out to Stellwagen just to see wildlife. We were lucky. Uh, it's not an unusual sight, but it was a really good day, my best ever. We were surrounded by dozens of whales, uh, up to 15 in any one view, and they were doing something amazing. They were doing what's called bubble net feeding. Now, these were humpback whales, but they were joined by some minke, which are, which are smaller whales. And the humpbacks gather in small groups. They go to the bottom, and they find a school of fish. Then they begin to weave a net of bubbles around the school, ever tightening the net as they move toward the surface. As the net closes, the fish are very concentrated into a bait ball. Then the whales take turn diving under the ball of fish and erupting through it with their giant pelican-like mouths agape and sucking in all those fish. And they bubble again, and then they rise up through it and just gulp tons and tons of fish. And it's just the most astounding sight, and it was a beautiful day to see it. 
they I was amazed to see them how long they would just lie at the surface with their mouth open as if it was their workholes and their tongue trying to get all that food into their throat or something. Yeah, they need to uh, push water into their mouth and out the sides to concentrate the fish against those curtains hanging from the top of their mouth called baleen. Then they can swallow the fish more easily. But whales also seem to spend a lot of time just lunking around meditating. <laughs> what do they meditate on? This is not something I'm privy to. Oh, okay. It's a deep mystery. They do work collaboratively, though, on those bubble nets. It isn't like, you know, solo feeding or something. Yeah. Uh, humpback whales, like most mammals, uh, are social and they are aware of each other's activities and perhaps intent. And so the whole, ac- the whole operation of feeding on schooling fish uh, looks like a collaborative endeavor and probably is. But they also will feed singly. They have other ways of feeding. Some of them are really amazing that we just recently discovered. Um, we had a huge jump in our understanding of what humpback whales do out on Stellwagen when Dave Wiley, the uh, sanctuary research coordinator, uh, began to put with his colleagues tags on the whales that told us how they were moving through the water. And uh, we learned exactly how they maneuver to do different kinds of feeding. And one of the most exciting is they dive to the bottom where sand lance, their primary prey, a long, skinny silver fish, is actually buried in the sand much of the time. And the whales will just crash into the bottom and terrify the sand lance. And they squeeze out of the bottom like toothpaste. And then the whale skims along and sucks them up. And we know they're doing this uh, from this so-called DTAG data. But during the time that they feed in that way, a lot of whales have big gaping wounds on one side of their head, on their lower jaw. And that's because they've been scraping the sand to get the sand lamps. And uh, the, the amazing thing is they seem to be handed or headed. They seem to prefer... One side. Most of the whales I've seen are wounded on the left side, but I think that there are some that go the other way. Well, do you think that's why fin whales have white on one side of their face and black on the other? It's actually been proposed that fin whales use that to manipulate the behavior of fish. The fish, they can make them think perhaps that the white side of their head is rising toward the surface and instead they're just going into their mouth. Um, or, or perhaps they can sneak up on the fish by rolling on the other side uh, where it's dark. Uh, who knows? It depends on the weather, the, what the sun is doing that day. Uh, but this is still only speculation. It's very hard in the plankton-rich, turbid waters these animals feed in. It's very hard to actually see what's going on. One of the great breakthroughs is now we carry uh, side-scan sonar with us. And the side-scan sonar is very high frequency, which means it can see fine detail, and it literally paints a picture of the whale in the water, even if you can't see through the water. And that's just been astounding. Wow. It totally is. And also, Dave Wiley's and his team's work of being able to map out the position so that uh, you can go. He has 
picture, you know, diagrams of what the whale actually is positioned as it moves underwater. It's just That's phenomenal. Right. That's right. The amazing thing is getting the tag onto the whale. It doesn't harm the whale. It's a suction cup device, and they go after the whale with a long pole about 15 feet long. Uh, I don't know what Dave calls it. I call it the whale bopper. And they get up to a whale, and then they just get this pole, like, you know, whipping like a fly rod. And then they just wham on top of the whale, and the suction cup grabs. And then for as long as it holds on to the whale, this tag is recording the speed, orientation, uh, and general movements of the whale. It's, it's amazing. And then it pops off the whale, and you download the data. It is really amazing what we're learning about the whales through the, the research that is supported by people who go on whale watches and uh, also encourage government to support uh, whale research. Yeah, when you're on a whale watch, there is real data. There are real data being recorded. Uh, right now, uh, students from Boston University and I are going through, I think, 30 years of data that the New England Whale Center, under the direction of Mason Weinrich, uh, have accumulated about seabirds. So every single time a member of the Whale Center goes out on a whale watch out of Gloucester, they record the seabirds that they're seeing. And even though they can't take very detailed data while they're also, you know, entertaining the, the tourists and teaching them, the data they have gotten was enough for us to look at patterns of migration, appearance, and disappearance of seabirds. And we can see the footprint of climate change in those data. Wow. Tell us about the laughing gull, what he was telling, finding. Well, the laughing gull is actually a southern gull. It comes up to our waters during the summer. It's one of the very common birds around feeding humpback whales this time of year. Uh, and what we could see in the data is the date of appearance of the first laughing gull and their disappearance uh, before the end of the whale-watching season. Uh, another bird that we saw coming and going is a, is a beautiful, big, open-ocean bird called Cory Shearwater, and that's a bird characteristic of warm water. So what we saw year by year is more and more Cory Shearwater showing up, and this is correlated to an increase in the sea surface temperature, the warmth of the water on Stellwagen Bank. So we're watching this giant choreography of animals shifting their range and behavior as the climate changes rapidly enough to see a profound change in only 20 years. Les Kaufman, thank you. That was very interesting. We're going to take a quick break and be back after that. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. All together now, all together now, Connecting all together local stewardship now, with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and 
ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back with uh, John Williamson. And Les Kaufman was just telling us about uh, the whales of Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary. And Les had to head off with his family on a well-earned vacation. And um, so I'm left here with John Williamson. We're talking about Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary. And I highly recommend that for more information, you visit the webpage. You can read about the history of Henry Stellwagen and the famous people that were with him on his boat, including uh, Longsworth, uh, let's see, including uh, Alexander Wadsworth Longfellow, who's the brother of the poet, was helping out on the um, surveying of the Massachusetts coast with uh, Commander Stellwagen. And the website for more information about Stellwagen Bank is Stellwagen, which is spelled S-T-E-L-L-W-A, G-E-N dot NOAA, N-O-A-A dot gov. And it's just chock full of neat stuff, including videos that you can see of the whales. And it announces a new uh, sister ship relationship with uh, Bermuda. And we also, Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary also has a relationship with Dominican Republic. So we call it the Benevolent Bermuda Triangle of studying the whales of those three respected areas. Uh, with me is John Williamson, who um, is a fisherman, I'd say. And, and uh, John, how did you first uh, experience Stellwagen Bank? Well, I'll get into that for a second, but just before we leave the subject, the, the Stellwagen uh, yeah. uh, website, the Stellwagen Sanctuary's website, is just chock-a-block full with in, of information, including the the uh, the t- detagging studies and the computer simulations of whale behavior that came from that can be found on on that website as well, and uh, including uh, some the actual um, uh, computer simulations uh, of whales underwater. Uh, and uh, and the Stellwagen is spelled with an E, not an O. People people uh, often try to put it uh, Stell before the wagon, but it's W A G E N. Um, keep for the confusion. Yes, my, I, uh, uh, I, I'm a commercial fisherman by background. I've been uh, over 40 years in commercial fishing and, uh, and 
related uh, management activities. But when I was commercial fishing uh, back in the 1980s, um, out of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, fishing all, uh, I fished uh, all uh, up and down the western Gulf of Maine, and, uh, and that took me oftentimes to the southern portion of Jeffrey's Ledge and uh, on the Stellwagen Bank, which, or the northern part of Stellwagen Bank, which is the northern part of the National Marine Sanctuary. Um, Tell us what Jeffrey's Ledge is. Excuse me? What is Jeffrey's Ledge? Jeffrey's Ledge is, uh, is another uh, geological formation that uh, is, is the northern part of the sanctuary, and it uh, is very much a part of the, uh, of the whole ecosystem structure that, of which the Stellwagen Bank is a part, uh, and which is captured to a large extent by the sanctuary's boundaries. But the Stellwagen Ledge itself, I mean, no, excuse me, uh, Jeffrey's Ledge itself is, is uh, the one of the rock ribs of New England. It, uh, it's the the geological formation that makes Cape Ann continued underwater. So it arcs north from uh, and east from Cape Ann and uh, it circles back around and then comes close to shore again at around Cape Elizabeth in Maine. So that uh, Jeffrey's Ledge is about oh, 30 miles long and it's a distinct formation out in the ocean. Uh, Average is about 25 miles off the coast of uh, northern Massachusetts and New Hampshire and southern Maine. So it, like Stellwagen Bank, makes the water whelm up into the lighted zone of the ocean. You know, that if you have a gyre of, of ocean water turning in the Gulf of Maine uh, counterclockwise, the, 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 wa- the rich water is loaded with nutrients from the rivers of Maine and, and uh, St. John's and so forth. You know, are whelmed up onto onto Jeffrey's ledges and onto uh, Stellwagen Bank that provides uh, rapid growth and and huge anaerobic uh, levels of feeding animals. It's one of the more ex- exceptional uh, oceanographic phenomena that we have on the eastern seaboard. It's uh, the really rich nutrient, cold nutrient rich waters from uh, the Labrador Current comes down along the. Nova Scotia shelf spills into the Gulf of Maine around the tip of Nova Scotia, uh, finds its way into the deep basins in the Gulf of Maine, and one of the deepest basins in the Gulf of Maine is uh, is this area between Jeffrey's Ledge and the uh, New Hampshire and Massachusetts North Shore, and uh, in some places it gets down as deep as 600 feet, and those lower levels are filled with this this cold, rich water, and as it gets forced south, it comes into a cul-de-sac, so it's, it's contained between uh, Jeffrey's Ledge and the shoreline, and uh, the coastline, and it gets mm. forced up uh, into an upwelling that washes over Jeffrey's Ledge and washes over Stellwagen Bank, and that's what uh, Les was describing. And when that cold, uh, rich water hits the sunlight, plankton bloom, and that's what brings all the, the bait fish and the feed and everything that feeds on that. And that's what brings the fishermen, as I think uh, Les pointed out as well. And, and as a fisherman, have you seen changes in the – are fishermen seeing changes in the fish populations? Uh, we've seen a lot of change over the course of my career, yes. Right. I, um, I mean, I, my career has been that I was uh, 20-something uh, years uh, making a living on the water. And, uh, and then from there, I migrated into being a uh, – Trade representative and representing fishermen in management in the regulatory process, and then finally was uh, uh, was appointed uh, uh, 
uh, to the New England Fishery Management Council and served on that for uh, nine years. And at the same time, uh, uh, came to uh, also be uh, an advisor to the Stelling and Bank Sanctuaries Advisory Council, uh, which you and I both serve on. So I've had a lot of experience, not just in fishing, but also in the regulatory process. And um, and over the course of the 40-something years I've been working on these things, we've seen a very great deal of change. Um, um, much of it uh, uh, not good as far as, as management of fish populations, but we're seeing those fish populations now coming back with uh, aggressive management and, uh, and sacrifices from the fishing industry. But we've also seen ecological changes, and those are changes that we don't understand yet, that has a lot to do with the work that Les does and, and the work that gets done on the sanctuary. I was in Washington for uh, Oceans Week in June, and the word at NOAA was that that we are turning a corner on overfishing. Does that sound about right? Yes, I think that's the case. Uh, that's happening in a general way nationwide. Uh, we have some very tough and aggressive laws for managing uh, fish populations so that we you know so that they are healthy and that we grow them back to healthy levels when they've been diminished um, there were a lot of things we didn't understand when I was first fishing when I in the, in the 70s and 80s there were a lot of things that we that we as fishermen and NOAA as fishery regulators uh, didn't understand about the environment and uh, we made mistakes and overfishing was our biggest mistake uh, and it's taken decades now to correct that, but uh, we're well on our way to seeing some big improvements in fish populations, and, and we are seeing that in New England. Now, this doesn't mean we're out of the woods yet. Uh, there are some fish populations that are still in not good shape, but uh, there's a regulatory uh, framework in place now that is helping those populations recover. And the question is, can the fishing industry adapt and, and uh, keep its head above water economically while these while this recovery goes on. Well, people like to badmouth the New England Fisheries Management Council. It's usually because you want one thing and you don't get it as much as you'd like to. But it, it really is a tribute to this collaborative processing work that you've reached this point. I, I think that's a really good observation, Robin. I'm glad you said that. I mean, the, the process we have in this country is a democratically run way of managing our fisheries and the Fishermen have uh, played a very active role in making that happen. And so the sacrifices that have been made by the fishing industry over the course of the last 20 years to bring these stocks back have been what is making it possible now for, the, for this recovery to happen. It's not been easy. and A lot of people have gotten hurt in the process. But, uh, but responsible leadership in the fishing industry has understood that those sacrifices were what what it would take to uh, see a better future. And you can't cookbook it. You can't have some experts coming in and just writing the recipe and expect it to work that way. I think that's absolutely I know that's absolutely right. I mean, it's just too complex an environment out there, and uh, the fishing industry knows its business better than anybody, than any, than well, any you have book to be expert adaptive. on shore. You yes, go ahead. You have to be adaptive. You have to go out and try something and then see how it works and respond, adapt to the different changing situations. That's absolutely correct. And, uh, one, of, and one of the things that's made that uh, possible here in New England and is, and is fueling the recovery of 
fish stocks is the exceptional partnerships that have been have been taking place over the last ten years between fishermen and the scientific community, where fishermen and scientists are coming together and they are asking questions and putting forth hypotheses and learning from each other and formulating the hypotheses as a collaboration together rather than individually and coming up with some very interesting questions to be investigated and um, and, and uh, new insight into the way the resource works, and at the same time creating a regulatory environment that is responsive to uh, to scientific information, so that uh, fishermen know that when regulations go in place, they're based on the best science. We'll be right back after this break with John Williamson. <laughs> Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Okay, we're back with John Williamson, and we're talking about uh the whales and the fecundity of sea life on Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary off the coast of Massachusetts. John was telling us about the workings of the New England Fisheries Management Council and how by much sacrifice and working closely with scientists, uh, they have we have turned a corner on overfishing. And there's still much to be done, but there is hope that we will forever have fish to eat when we want to eat fish. <laughs> and um, But the work of the New England Fisheries Management Council is focused on populations of different species, commercially valuable species. And there's a need to look at the whole ecosystem, and that's what 
um, having a, a sanctuary program is all about. Isn't that right, John? Um, yeah, I mean, if I can take a step backwards, uh, yeah, Rob, and describe it. I mean, scientists uh, uh, have come to recognize in recent years that that there are large marine ecosystems and that uh, and that have con- that have continuous char- characteristics is what makes them a system. So we have a large marine ecosystem off the coast of New England. It actually extends from Nova Scotia all the way down to North Carolina. And uh, in, 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 in that area, there's just some uniform characteristics of species. You find the same species distributed over much of that range. Um, uh, very different off the coast of uh, North Carolina and Virginia than it is off the coast of Maine, but there is a continuity to it. And uh, oceanographic conditions as well keep that area, uh, uh, give that area some uniformity. Of that large marine ecosystem, the, not all of it is, it's not uniform. It, it has hot spots. It has places of exceptional activity. The area of most exceptional activity over that entire range is, is off the coast of Massachusetts. It's from, it extends from Ipswich Bay and Jeffrey's Ledge uh, down to the Great South Channel off the coast of Cape Cod. And nestled right in the center of that is uh, the National Marine Sanctuary, which is the very heart of the ecosystem off the eastern seaboard. Uh, the most exceptional area that I have ever seen as a fisherman. I mean, I can tell you, I fished in Florida, I fished in Alaska, and I fished uh, over much of New England. And there's nothing quite like uh, the area, the, the area in and around the National Marine Sanctuary off, off of Massachusetts Bay. Um, yes. I mean, I think it's it's if you look back at the history of this, I mean, Stellwagen Bank and the and the Ecology surrounding Stellwagen Bank have been there a lot longer than the colonists who, who settled the Boston area and the shores of Massachusetts Bay. Um, and in fact, it was that ecosystem that brought Europeans to uh, settle in places like Marblehead and Plymouth and uh, Quincy and Boston. And uh, it, it's uh, it's the the foundational heritage for the six million people who li- now live in the Boston metropolitan area that uh, originally it was that ocean ecosystem that fed those early colonists and have and created commerce that for Massachusetts for the first 200, 300 years that there were people living here. Um, and it, uh, so it's, it's our responsibility to make sure we don't lose that heritage. Absolutely. And it's important to keep it in the context that you described from Nova Scotia to New, uh, North Carolina in that, you know, some of the, some of the animals, you know, migrate those kinds of distances. So the striped bass and the bluefish and so forth. Um, you know, and it's, it's not like managing the land, is it? No, it's not at all like that. I mean, people try to make the connection between management on land and management on shore, but it's like comparing a stew to a pizza. They're two very different uh, mediums. So we, uh, um, uh, management well, of uh, the ocean is oh, very much dependent on, on the oceanography. But go ahead. Sorry. The, the, the stew analogy 
is further complicated because um, it's not only three-dimensional, but it's like turning the heat on and watching the, the hot bubbles move, stir the stew, because, you know, you'll one moment, some months, you'll have very quiet parts of the ecosystem, and other months, it'll be teeming with life that if, if the surveyors don't see it at that time, they think there's nothing there. Yeah, life moves around. It's very dynamic. And that's part of the fascination of being a fisherman with the, uh, that environment is that, is that learning how it is constantly changing and how, and how to think about it because it, it's never the same and it's always unpredictable. So tell us more about your work with Stellwagen. Well, I, um, um, I, as I was describing, I, uh, came to understand uh, that this was an area that was very important in the scheme of things uh, when I uh, first as a fisherman and then working in the regulatory process. And, uh, uh, and an advisory council was formed for the Stellwagen Bank National Sanctuary in, uh, in 2000, 2001. And people are invited to serve, uh, or people ap- apply to serve on the advisory council, and, uh, and there are specific places for different interests. Uh, it's, the advisory council is meant to be a, uh, uh, represent all the users and user groups and interest groups for uh, that territory, uh, the National Marine Sanctuary. And, um, and so you have fishermen on the, on the advisory council, uh, fixed gear fishermen, mobile gear fishermen, recreational fishermen. You have environmental groups uh, represented. You have scientists represented. You had the general public represented, marine trades, um, the boating public, uh, so that uh, uh, when the advisory council is giving recommendations to the sanctuary program, it's coming as a consensus of all these interest groups saying, well, we have our economic interests at stake, but we also are managing for the overall benefit of this ecosystem because that's the root of, uh, of our interests. That makes sense. It's great. To, yes, it's great to hear the lobster interests represented so well at the meetings. <laughs> I mean, we're recognizing that that uh, uh, there are hot spots in the ocean. There are exceptional places. I and I just, it's so hard to describe Stellwagen to people because it is. It, you know, when you stand on the beach and you're looking out to sea, it just looks like a flat expanse of water. It all looks the same as you look out to sea. But if you were actually a fish swimming under the ocean, you, you know that not all places are created the same. And it's just that, that there are some places are different. And today is the, the special places here, and today the special places there. But the sanctuary, is there's so much consistency. We know that there is a huge diversity out there. And, uh, uh, and we know that it's contained within that 800 square miles of boundary. I mean, it's a very large area, 800 square miles, that, uh, that it, a, a lot of that diversity from month to month, week to week, year to year is contained within that 800 square miles. So that anybody standing on the beach on the, on the, on the shores of Massachusetts Bay from Gloucester to Boston to situate to Provincetown, if you're standing on the beach and you're looking out at that blue expanse of water, you're actually looking at the National Marine Sanctuary. That's right. And it's, it's 
it's difficult to remember that the sanctuary is so much more than Stellwagen Bank, that not only is it the bank that we've heard so much about where the whales feed, but there are these deep canyons off the edges of the bank, and there are realms where, you know, barrel sponges are found, and shipwrecks are tucked into corners that uh, one does not think of as being the feeding grounds of a whale. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I mean, and that all relates back to this is uh, our heritage, okay, the the prolific uh, amount of biology that's there, the great fish stocks that are there now the, and have been in the past and even greater the, uh, in the future, and then the ship, shipwrecks that represent, you know, 400 years of, of commerce in and out of Massachusetts Bay and the Port of Boston. Um, uh, all these are things that we are seeking to make sure we're not, are not lost to future generations. Uh, and we do that by, uh, uh, through the, the uh, Sanctuary Advisory Council. I, yeah. I, I think it's a hard point to get across to people, but this is the exceptional opportunity for people who live in Massachusetts, especially been in New England is to understand that what the uh, what's special here is that there is a there are bounds that are drawn around this special place in the ocean and there is a government agency that is designated to take care of this area to make sure it's it's protected and that it's used wisely and creates a vehicle for the people who use the area and who care about the area to to tell the government how to protect it, and still let people have full use of it as well. So it's it's a matter of us all learning about the area and 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 understanding and defining what it means that it's a national marine sanctuary and uh, uh, that and and defining how we want to go about using it and uh, and cherishing it. It looms large in the imagination of American citizens. I mean, who has not read or seen the movie Moby Dick or Captain's Courageous or Jaws or Perfect Storm? All of these take place in Massachusetts waters. And, you know, people see these. They, people think about the president going to the vineyard or, you know, vacationing on our shores and beaches. And the whole nation looks to this advisory council and the management team to make sure that there's a healthy ocean when they get there. You know, it's so it's so easy. You look out at the ocean, and you think of it, and to think of it as just something that's out there. That's uh, it's out there. It's foreign. Uh, it, it's something I can't experience. But the fact of the matter is that that, that ocean environment uh, belongs to the nation, and it belongs to all of us. And so the sanctuary becomes an opportunity for people to say, "Well, this belongs to me, and I care about it, and this is how I want it used." I'm talking with John Williamson, and after the break, we're going to learn about a new program called Stellwagen Alive. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. All together now. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back with John Williamson. And we're talking about a very special ecosystem, uh, the heart of uh, New England ocean waters, possibly the heart of ocean waters from Nova Scotia to North Carolina, that's Stellwagen Bank, and the canyons around it that make up the National Marine Sanctuary there. Hi, John. Um, uh, so there's been a need for, you know, more public engagement and, um, Tell us how um, you and some other people have come together to help get more people aware and engaged in Stellwagen. Well, uh, one of the things that the Advisory Council put a high priority on uh, and was the formation of a friends group for the National Marine Sanctuary, so that uh, a vehicle for the general public to, to a social vehicle for the general public to start to learn about the sanctuary and uh, and to become involved uh, uh, and to create means to become involved. So we've created a, uh, a friends organization. It's called Stellwagen Alive. Uh, and we have a website, uh, www.stellwagenalive, spelled S-T-E-L-L-W-A-G-E-N-A-L-I-V-E dot O-R-G. And, um, uh, and you can find out more about uh, the organization there. Um, it's uh, a small organization. We've been formed about four years ago. We're still growing. Uh, and we are always looking for people who want to get involved, who've got ideas as to how to talk about and learn about and interact and, uh, and become uh, uh, part of this ecosystem, to touch this marine ecosystem and become a landside part of it. And, uh, and so I'm, and I, and I'm always t- ready to talk to people about the work of the organization and how they can become involved. So you can contact me uh, through the website, uh, john at com. 
Volkswagenalive.org is my uh, email address, and I'd be happy to talk to people. Um, people are upset about the plastic in the ocean. Can you tell us a bit about Stellwagen Sweep? We've got a, we've had a program we've been doing now. We're in our third year, uh, and in, and it's continuing. And it has been a, uh, uh, a program where we have uh, uh, been partnering with the fishing industry uh, in, in and around Massachusetts Bay and the National Marine Sanctuary Program, uh, we've been, where we've created opportunities for fishermen to collect derelict fishing gear uh, that may be cluttering the, or littering the seafloor uh, in Massachusetts Bay and to dispose of it in uh, dumpsters that are specific for, uh, that, for collection of this uh, of this uh, marine debris, and then the uh, and the uh, debris that's collected then is, is goes to waste energy uh, system, so that uh, so that it is recycled. But there have actually literally been hundreds of tons of uh, of derelict fishing gear. Some of it have come off the ocean bottom. Some of it has come out of uh, out of what would have been the waste stream of uh, just used fishing gear that would that would be looking for a, a Place to be disposed of, uh, but one way or the other, we're making sure that uh, that uh, fishing gear in the in the in that the National Marine Sanctuary is is being uh, uh, is currently fishing is being properly and uh, uh, de- deployed and is uh, and and that if uh, if any if lobster traps get lost, that we begin to identify where they are and make sure that they get collected again. So. Uh, and the fishing well, industry you... has just been wonderful participants in this, um, and we've actually had fishermen working with uh, scientists uh, with multi-beam sonar and size scan sonar mm. to locate hot spots of uh, where there is de- is debris on the ocean floor, so we can get uh, uh, so we can send down an ROV and and uh, collect it and bring it to the surface, dispose of it properly. This is a little more than handing fishermen trash bags to go through their bycatch with and pull plastic. No, no, it's much this more than like, that. This is, a, this is, industri- no, this is industrial in scale, and it's hard work, and fishermen are ready to do it because it needs to be done. Are, are the fishing boats big enough to haul the trash up from deep? Well, yes. I mean, we do it. We, we make it work. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, because it's pretty substantial what you find, what they're finding down there, as you were saying, on the sea floor with their with their sonars and stuff. It, uh, the, the, Les Kaufman was talking about the sophistication of the sonar technology, and it, it really is now finally giving us a, uh, uh, a way of seeing below the waves that we didn't have in the past. And that technology is becoming more sophisticated and less expensive every year. So it, as it does, it creates these opportunities to do better and to understand so our not- environment. Go ahead. Why not just use grappling hooks and just grapple it up? Well, I mean, we've uh, in order to for two reasons: one, to to so we're not disturbing the seafloor any more than than we have to, uh, and two, that a lot of the derelict fishing gear we found it in conjunction with some of the shipwrecks that are that are in uh, in the sanctuary, and so we want to make sure we're not doing any activity that might uh, that might uh, further degrade these shipwrecks. One of the sanctuary's programs is protection of these heritage sites. So you've you managed to, to get access to a remote-operated vehicle 
that goes down with a, a carabiner in its claws or something? Or exactly, and it, uh, and <laughs> yeah. it, uh, we we do a, There's a, we use one type of sonar to do a, to scan an area and identify what's down there, and it's looking for shipwrecks as much as anything. But we identify areas where there are lost fishing gear, and then. Uh, send down another ROV with a smaller camera on it for targeted action to, to grab hold of the fishing gear and bring it to the surface. It's a very much more efficient way to do this than, than grappling for it, which is hit or miss. Well, this is fabulous because otherwise the stuff will slowly break into small pieces and, and become you know, stuck in the stomachs of animals and stuff. And in the meantime, well, I guess things are getting tangled in it and... It, 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 I mean, fishing gear is a special situation, I mean, and it's the fishing industry is uh, cognizant of that, and, uh, I mean, nobody wants to lose fishing gear, so that's one yeah. part of the story, but, I mean, the bigger story is what do we as human beings put into the ocean, and uh, ultimately everything, the ocean is downstream for all wastes and pollutants. And so we have to make sure that what goes into the ocean is not ruining that environment. Uh, so um, I mean, a large portion of what it is, uh, what is involved with understanding the sanctuary and monitoring the health of the sanctuary has as much to do with understanding what's happening on shore and and uh, and uh, you know, what is being uh, introduced into that environment. So we. Uh, you know, it's it the uh, you know, water quality, the uh, the Boston sewer outfall. I mean, people from the from all over the Boston metropolitan area are uh, making their contributions to the to the waste stream going uh, the water stream coming out of that uh, Boston sewer outfall. And so, one of the things is that uh, the sanctuary does in in uh, uh, partnership with the MWRA is is maintain monitoring sites. That we know that that plume of fresh water coming out of the uh, the uh, Boston sewer outfall is uh, it, you know, is what it is introducing to the ocean, right? And, and knowing that it's that it it's not having an effect on marine life downstream. In fact, that is one of the big success stories that we can point to is is that water quality in Massachusetts Bay has improved substantially over the last 20 years, largely because largely because of uh, improvements in uh, Treatment of shoreside effluents, but also because of people's awareness of non-point source pollution and cleaning up opportunities for for pollutants to wash into the ocean from any number of different sources. It's the the statistic that I find interesting is is that the Boston sewer outfall, twenty four million gallons of fresh water treated. Water, uh, for 24 million gallons an hour on average, coming uh, uh, generated by all the people living in, in around the Boston metropolitan area. So somebody flushes the toilet in Belmont, so there's a whale on Stellwagen that might catch a whiff of it someday. Well, it's nutrient-rich loading in a big way. Well, I think that is part of what treatment's all about, to make sure that uh, what goes into the ocean is not a, is not upsetting the balance of things. And I think the MWRA program and the whole treatment system that's there is, is, been a, is recognized as a very responsible way of doing things. Yes, but they really, they really seem to be going the distance. And 
you're not seeing deleterious effects or bad effects of uh, the outfall pipe out there. But as you mentioned, I mean, there are so many other things that we need to be aware of. Plastics in the ocean. I mean, I, when I go out uh, boating in and around Stowagon Sanctuary, I am on a calm, clear day. Uh, you can look around and you'll see balloons floating on the water. It's one of my pet peeves. Anytime somebody loses a helium balloon on shore, it's going to end up in the ocean. And oftentimes, it's uh, you find the mylar balloons that are several years old that haven't degraded and they're, they're floating around on top of the ocean. But uh, That's just terrible. Or you know, styrofoam before... coffee cups. <laughs> styrofoam yeah. coffee cups galore. So, I mean, all of these small p- bits and pieces of our civilization end up in the ocean and in, and in aggregate, cumulatively, they, man, they amount to a very big waste stream. And uh, we have to be cognizant of that, and we have to be cognizant of that. That in 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 aggregate, they rep- they represent a lot of stuff. And uh, yeah, don't throw that anything in the environment that you don't want to eat first. Excuse me, I don't like particularly munching on a styrofoam. Nope. Yeah, don't don't throw anything in the environment that you don't want to eat first. So that helps us. If you need help in deciding what to throw away, let's use that as a way. John, we're just about out of time, and I want to urge people to uh, visit your website at stellwagonalive.org, but especially um, the, uh, the NOAA website, which is uh, Stellwagon, what is it, stellwagon.noaa.gov. And, I, you know, because it comes down to whale watching. The whales are just incredible out there. And uh, one can go from any shore, uh, and they'll take you out to uh, to Stellwagen. And it's it's just, and if you're going to do that, I recommend going to the website because then you'll sound intelligent when with your kids or with your family members. John, thank you very much. I enjoyed it, Rob. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then.